0: Came out with sets of numbers and I plotted them on pieces of paper. Radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, radio waves. Astrophys brings the news, arrays and dishes get different views. Are you confused? radio away radio away radio away she sees radio away she sees radio away welcome to the astrophiz podcasts my name is Brendan O'Brien and as we announced in our last episode We're moving into a monthly format for 2020, so this is our March episode. We're starting each episode with a community service announcement. First of all, wash your hands very well and often, and isolate as much as possible as we work our way through the coronavirus crisis. Also, climate change is real and accelerating, and we need to keep coal in the ground and urgently transition to renewable energy sources. See what you can do to influence your local politicians to develop planet-saving policies. In each episode, we speak with a special guest in the fields of radio astronomy, optical astronomy, space science, or particle physics. Now, this is a very special episode for us. This is our 100th episode. So we're making this... A guest interview only episode. And so I'm not going to give you a news roundup report. And Ian Astroblog Musgrave won't be giving you his normal What's Up doc session. That will come back in our next episode for our April edition. So in the meantime, if you need to know what's up in the evening and morning skies, go to Ian's Astroblog site. He puts up weekly observation notes. And you can also find his Southern Skywatch, which gives you a summary for the whole month. So in short, just go to your favourite search engine and put in AstroBlogger or Southern Skywatch and you'll get it straight from Ian. So our featured guest for this special episode is a very special scientist who I've been looking forward to speaking with for a very long time. Without further ado, I'm very excited to introduce listeners to Dr. Vanessa Moss, astronomer and currently head of CSIRO's ASCAP Science Operations. CSIRO is Australia's leading science organisation and ASCAP, is the Australian Square Kilometre Array Pathfinder Radio Telescope Array in Western Australia. Here we go. Hello, Vanessa. Hi, Brendan. Today I'm very pleased to welcome Dr Vanessa Moss, astronomer and currently head of CSIRO's ASCAP Science Operations. ASCAP is the Australian Square Kilometre Array Pathfinder Radio Telescope Array in Western Australia. Thanks for speaking with us, Vanessa. Thanks for having me on your show, Brendan. Excellent. Now, before we look at your research and ASCAP, can you tell us where you grew up, please, Vanessa, and how you were first drawn to science?
1: Sure. I grew up in Sydney, in Australia, and i I guess from a very early age, I owe a lot to my parents for encouraging me to try lots of different things, all kinds of things you know, not just science, but just everything that kids can get excited about. One of my first memories is going to probably like an observatory somewhere or a science visitor center and buying you know one of those meteorites the the tech type thing I remember. Doing like a chemistry workshop where we made a rainbow in a cylinder and be thinking like that was the coolest thing ever because you mix like the chemicals together and because of densities, things line up and then you get this awesome rainbow. Just like lots of things like that. I think being curious about things, being encouraged to ask questions and find out how things worked. Uh, And Obviously, when you're a kid, that comes a lot from your parents, people around you. So I owe a lot to them for really encouraging me to be curious about the world.
0: Cool. So please tell us a little about your school days and those early ambitions and how did those ambitions evolve?
1: Well, I guess I I liked doing lots of different things. I, I definitely, you know, wasn't set on being a scientist. I liked arts, I liked history, I liked geography, all kinds of topics. So I really, I think, this is something that was true at high school. It definitely carried over a little bit into uni. I wanted to do everything, <laughs> all the different things. Yep. So I had a, a lot of mix of different subjects at high school in, I guess the critical years. So like year 10, 11 and 12, I had a really good physics teacher, uh, Mr. Mani, and I think the core thing he did was make physics really fun, you know, like encourage us to just have fun with it. And that had a big influence on me and ultimately affected my decision to do physics at university. But, you know, until that time, I actually wanted to be a children's book writer, most of all. Uh, I wanted to do a Bachelor of Arts in Media and Communications. It's very different, the paths you can take because of the people who influence you and encourage you to be interested in different things. And I think astronomy is just one of the many interesting things you can be doing in the world. And there's so many other cool things. And I'm lucky that I'm doing astronomy, which I find really exciting and very interesting. But there are lots of other things out there.
0: Fantastic, Vanessa. So after your successful school career, your joint undergrad degree was in physics and Japanese. And it's great to see the arts and sciences combined. How did that work for you?
1: Well you can see I still continued with trying to do lots of different things so in at university I was my original major was going to be history so physics and history but I actually found I enjoyed the Japanese more once I got to uni so I switched to that but you know I was doing math and physics which you kind of do on the science side but on the the art side I was doing Japanese and modern history and you know you do some English courses as well so that was actually really nice it was nice to have this good balance between subjects if I was sick of equations in physics I would switch to memorizing kanji Um, I could just like mix it up that was fun it was a good range of topics as well and I think having that mix like I don't know how common it is these days I think we tend to try and encourage people you know like oh you're going to do this science degree or you're going to do law degree and you're very narrowed in very quickly. And I think what I liked about my degree was that I got to think in different ways and taught different perspectives. And that was really great. I also, as part of the degree, they encourage you to spend some time overseas in the country where the language you're studying is being spoken. So I spent six months in Tokyo, living in like pretty much the city of Tokyo, studying at Keio University. And basically during that time, just studying Japanese. And that was such a good experience. It was such a different perspective on things. I love Japan. It was really fun to be there. So I think that was also a great experience. In first year, at least on the astronomy topic, because, you know, at this point I was still like, physics is cool. I, I actually did a research project with a couple of people in physics. So this was Anne Green and Tara Murphy. They were my first introduction into astronomy. And I enjoyed it so much that kind of from that time, it was like, yeah, I I could continue in astronomy one day. Maybe this would be a cool thing to do.
0: That's great. And then your PhD was also a joint exercise with both the University of Sydney and with the CSIRO. Uh, The title, I've looked it up, The Galactic Ecosystem Mm -hmm. Outflow and Infall in the Halo of the Milky Way. Tell us about your supervisors and... Was it fun? And I presume the workload was enormous.
1: <laughs> well, it's funny you say that, actually, because um, I think the, uh, the year that was definitely the most workload was honours, uh, which is what you do before the PhD. And that's where, you know, you, ha- you have one year at the University of Sydney and you're balancing all of these quite advanced topics and coursework against a project that you also have to, like, do... And present at the end so I think actually like the PhD in comparison where you do a little bit of coursework but then you kind of just are mostly focused on difficult but long-term research questions is quite different in comparison so that you know there were times where it was pretty busy or crazy like deadlines but in general I actually found the PhD was like not as stressful as honours where everything was really condensed so my supervisors for the PhD were Tara Murphy, who had been my honours supervisor, and Naomi McClell Griffiths, who was based at CSIRO. Uh, I think that was actually really great. Uh, A lot of the, the science drivers from my PhD, which was looking at the Milky Way and the gas in the galaxy and how it all relates to each other, that really came from Naomi. So I spent a lot of time at CSIRO working with her, also just being exposed to the world of radio astronomy and all the cool people there. It was just so nice to be in this building where everyone's thinking about radio astronomy. Whereas, you know, at University of Sydney, it's it's also great, but it's a different thing. Everyone's kind of looking at different research topics. So when I went to CSIRO, I just felt immersed in this world of experts where people were doing different science topics, but they all were really clued in uh, to radio astronomy. So that was really cool. the The PhD topic itself was. Um, you know, really focused on radio astronomy using the Parkes radio telescope. And yeah, so I think I gained a lot from having that connection to CSIRO, which obviously I have another connection now. But um, yeah, it was it was good fun.
0: The best of both worlds, Baba So That's great, Vanessa. Now, can you tell us a little about your PhD research itself and what you learnt about the galactic ecosystem by studying uh, super shells and high-velocity clouds in the halo of the Milky Way.
1: Sure, I guess yeah. Uh, the the global question that we were trying to answer with the PhD was, you know, we talk about this galactic ecosystem. So if you think about our galaxy, the Milky Way, it it's not just this isolated thing. It's in an environment. There's galaxies nearby. Uh, there's all the processes that happen inside the galaxy itself, but then there's also how it interacts with its environment. So the goal of the PhD was really just to get a bit of picture of this using uh, the galactic all-sky survey, which was an all-sky hydrogen survey that Naomi led using parks. And that was really like the the next big thing for studies of the Milky Way, particularly in the Southern Hemisphere, because obviously parks can't see the North, but um, just you know you had high spectral resolution so you can really see the temperatures of the gas in a better way really good sensitivities you can see faint stuff how things are connected uh so super shells the the idea there was there was this huge structure that was revealed in the park's data Naomi had found it and she's like wow look at this it's like this big bubble sort of thing and it was you know it's it's really big on the sky it's is it like it's like 30 degrees by 20 degrees if you take the dimensions of it Mm. and for comparison the full moon is like half a degree so this, this thing is huge if you had radio eyes it would look insane and so we were studying that and kind of did like a a deep case study of it to measure the temperature of the gas. We think actually that this particular bubble is fragmenting, like it's near the end of its life as a coherent structure. So it's about to break up and just deposit material into the halo. If we could wait like another, I don't know, 100,000 to a million years, we'd see this happen, but obviously that's hard. (laughs) Yeah, so that was really fun. That was like this in depth case study thing. And then with the high-velocity clouds, this was more of a broader... Uh, overall sky perspective, because we were cataloging all these little clumps of hydrogen clouds in the halo of the Milky Way and trying to understand how many are there, what are their structures, how do they connect, you know, are they coming up from the disk, so are they like thrown out by things like these bubbles, you know, just thrown up there, or are they actually condensations coming in from the outer halo? And so one of the cool things that actually came out of this was, you know, it's just one of those fun things in science by sharing what we find with others, we discover new things. So yep. I went to right after the catalog, I went, we, we published the catalog and I was kind of, I guess, promoting it to people we were collaborating with. And I went to green bank in the U S yep. and collaborated with Jay Lockman. And he said, cool catalog. <laughs> and how does this compare to a very deep, sight lines so very pointed observations that he had done earlier of the halo obviously from the northern hemisphere because green bank is in the u.s but you know it's the same halo really so then we we made some plots trying to compare them and what we found actually was that when we compared the properties of the gas we saw in these clouds versus what he'd found our data actually showed evidence for two populations of clouds one that was bright condensed compact uh colder gas and the other that seems to be like warmer more diffuse and that population actually had more in common with the one jay had found so this meant you know we were when we were looking just at the bright stuff because that's what we were targeting with our source finder yep. there was actually a different population of gas we almost started to pick up which is what jay found when he just kind of like shotgunned the halo, you know, all these different positions all over the place. So that was telling us that maybe there's more to the structure, that actually it's maybe more like an iceberg structure. You have these bright parts sitting in like a haze of fainter diffuse stuff. So that was super exciting. And we're still actually following that up.
0: Cool. Wow. Uh, thanks, Vanessa. Now, <laughs> awesome. Now, back to your journey, lots of study, Great mentors, lots of travel and research as well as mixing it with the public. What was it like to work as an astronomy guide at Sydney Observatory?
1: Yeah, that was so. I started working there during my PhD, I think it was 2012, so it was towards the end of the PhD. And that was actually, I guess, I owe a lot to the observatory for the experiences that I had there because we it's like a really good way to be connected with what the general public perspective of astronomy and science is. And also like the way it would work is we would work as guides. So you would do a night tour and you'd have a group of maybe 20 people and you'd take them through the building, show stuff through telescopes, uh, maybe use the planetarium and point things out. And so like you're, you're really like kind of these people's entertainment for an hour and a half to two hours. And That's really the place where I learned how to speak to people, how to gauge whether they were following what I was saying, how to identify when people had questions, but didn't want to ask them and things like that. So it was actually a really good training in how to communicate with people. So that was really cool. And it was such a good experience interacting with all these enthusiastic people who always had lots of cool questions and just finding out what what we think we're doing in astronomy in Australia right now, how much of that gets out to the broader society. So that was actually a really good experience.
0: Fantastic. Then after your PhD, then you worked for Castro as a postdoc in the FLASH team. What is FLASH and what did you do as part of that team?
1: Uh, Yes, well, FLASH FLASH is a very cool survey. Uh, It has a great acronym. (laughs) It stands for the First large absorption survey in H1 or hydrogen. So this is neutral hydrogen, the same stuff that I was studying with the Milky Way, but obviously across the universe now instead. So this, this project is one of the ASCAP surveys specifically targeting uh, what we call H1 absorption or hydrogen absorption. And what this means is that we, we use distant black holes that are very bright radio emission we use those as kind of like lighthouses to illuminate gas along the line of sight and it it does so because if the gas is in front of it it kind of shadows that black hole so you see this absorption dip and that that can be you know the the gas can be inside the galaxy so associated with the black hole which is what my focus is on like it's really exciting if there's gas in there because like what's it going to do it's going to get like ionized and just evaporate but it can also be along the line of sight. So you can use these black holes as kind of like pointers across the universe and just detect any gas along the way. And that kind of tells you about the distribution of gas in the universe. So how is it evolving? What's it like, you know, 8 billion years ago versus 2 billion years ago and how has it changed in between? And that's obviously really important in understanding how we got to where we are today. And what the implications are for further evolution of our universe. And so there's like lots of really cool, big questions that we can answer with flash. Uh, I was working with, uh, so we have two PIs, uh, Elaine Sadler, who's based at university of Sydney and CSIRO and James Allison, who at the time was, I think he was at CSIRO. uh, He's now at Oxford. And so they're still leading the survey. We're still all working together, searching for, for gas. Uh, As part of my postdoc, I, I did Lots of different things. Having been previously a galactic person, I had to learn about redshift and this broader universe and, you know, look beyond the Milky Way for the first time. So That was a cool experience. I did a lot of observing uh, during commissioning time with ASCAP beta, which was the first six telescopes of ASCAP. And when it wasn't being used for commissioning, we could use it for like science experiments. There weren't a lot of things you could do with only six telescopes, but for us, the most exciting thing was the parameter space. We could search a part of the universe that had never really been searched very well for absorption, so that was quite cool, and we could make a lot of use of that. So yeah, so it was like it was really fun. It was a great group of people. I'm still working with them today, and yeah, it's really it's great being part of the Flash team.
0: <laughs> and the excitement in your voice is palpable.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's great. It's fun.
0: Fantastic. So thanks for that, Vanessa. Now, can you tell us about your move over to the Netherlands and your work as a telescope scientist with Estron, working with the Apertif upgrade on the Westerbork Synthesis Radio Telescope and LOFAR. Can you introduce our listeners to these instruments and your work over there, please?
1: Yeah, so after the Flash postdoc, so that was three years, Uh, I had the chance to go over to the Netherlands and work there. During the Flash Postdoc, I'd found that I loved research, but I also really enjoyed working with telescopes, understanding how they worked, and also just getting more of an insight into that whole system. You know, how do we get the data? I love data, like visualizing data, just understanding data. And so this job came up, which was literally 50% your own research research, You know, whatever you could do, obviously lining it up somehow with LOFAR and Apertif, and then 50% telescope support, which originally was meant to be for me just LOFAR, but that obviously changed along the way. So this seemed like a really good fit because I could do both of the things I really enjoyed. And um, yeah, and obviously the Netherlands is very far away, so (laughs) that was a big change. But it was, you can, Astron, which is the institute that I was based at, is a lot like CSIRO, it's um, it's part of a, a bigger network of institutions which do lots of different research like CSIRO, and Astron is their astronomy-focused institute, so a lot like CSIRO Astronomy and Space Science, where I now am. So they're really cousin institutes, so to speak. They have a lot in common. It's a good mix of not just researchers in the institute, but also engineers, software developers, all kinds of things. And yeah, so that, you know, I, I had been to Astron during my postdoc. So I kind of knew that it was like a a really good place to be and quite cool. So I went over there. I started working with LOFAR. We are the low frequency array. This is, it's a, it's very low frequencies, So it's less than 300 megahertz. Probably doesn't mean much to people, but this is very much a space where we haven't done a lot of radio astronomy for a long time. And it's like next level stuff because they have these stations of little dipoles and antennas across the Netherlands, but also across Europe. So at the moment, I think there's fifty, fifty-two 52 stations, which is like 14 international stations. And maybe it's 53 now. Cause did Latvia come online? Anyway, there's a lot of stations yeah. and um, you, you kind of work them all together. So the, one of them's like the furthest, to the west is Ireland right now. And I think the furthest to the east is Latvia or Poland. I think Latvia is more east. So, yeah, you have these huge baselines. Like, the, you know, those stations are all working together. It's pretty crazy. So I, I worked with that. I was doing um, a lot of different things. I developed an interactive map for visualizing LOFAR, which helped people, like, kind of understand the scale and diagnose problems and things like that. Yep. You know, just supporting observations, learning a lot about how LOFAR worked. And then I'd been there about three months or so when there was this push from the institute to really like consolidate some effort on Apertif, which is so the Westerbork Synthesis Radio Telescope dates back to 1970. It was one of the first interferometers, so you know using dishes that talk to each other yep. to resolve structures. It was one of the first in the world, um, and it was it's a very good, stable one. So it's been operating for so many years. So they they wanted to upgrade it in a very similar way to ASCAP. so putting what we call phased array feeds as receivers on the dishes, which allow us to see more of the sky at once. So you can do surveys a lot quicker, and it's just it's just a really cool technology that we're only beginning to explore in earnest right now. So they they're upgrading it to Apertif, and it was in commissioning mode, and so I was I guess drafted so to speak uh, as part of that effort to really. Contribute whatever I could to helping with commissioning and getting it on Sky for full surveys. So I started. I kind of thought of myself as like I was like uh, Betsy Adams, who was leading the imaging survey effort. I was like kind of her mercenary. It's like do whatever you can with your Python skills and coding and everything to help the the operations go smoothly. So that's where I started. And then towards the end of 2018, I took over the management of the operations side to just overseeing that whole process during commissionings and getting on Sky. So yeah, so it was really fun. It was, I learned so much and it was such a different world to be exposed to so many different things going on. And like all the skills I had going in, I came out of it with even more skills and more experiences, which were really great.
0: That's fabulous. Let's expand on that a little for, the early and mid-year astronomers who are listening, Vanessa, could you tell us what it's like to work internationally as an academic, as a researcher, and what it was like to live and work in the Netherlands, for example?
1: Yeah, I I guess going over, I didn't know that much about the Netherlands. I obviously knew it existed. I had been there and I liked it. And I was like, this is a cool place. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of cool places in the world, obviously, but my experience there was it, was it was really great. It was a very different culture in some ways, but actually there's a lot of ways in which it is similar to Australia. Uh, I think people think, for example, if you went to the United Kingdom to work, it's like, oh, well, you know, the convicts came from there, so you must have a lot in common. But I think actually in Australia we are quite direct as people, right? If we disagree with something, we'll say, oh, I don't think we should do it that way. And in the UK there's kind of a culture around – Saying that in a very polite way, which we don't have in Australia. (laughs) So it's very easy to offend people in the UK if you're not careful. Right. The Netherlands is kind of next level directness. You know, they, the, I was kind of told going over, just be prepared for people to tell you brutally honestly what they think about an idea or how something's working or all kinds of things. And yeah, so I think I actually really appreciate that. I like that it's a, a society that is capable of being brutally honest with people around it but also with itself I think that that helps in some way so that was just an interesting thing that I learned about the Netherlands being there Um, I found Astron itself very welcoming I I was you know you you spend your entire career in Sydney and then you go over not just to a different city in Australia but somewhere on the other side of the world and no one really knows you you're like okay how's this going to work I don't have that that network of contacts that I know in Australia, I had know so many people in the Australian community now, but I, I guess I was lucky that there were some people I knew, uh, one of my friends who had been a PhD student at a similar time, he'd actually gone over there. So, you know, we did have some people we knew I went over with my partner. Uh, that was really lucky. Cause I think, you know, it's probably a very different experience if you go, you know, if you're trying to either do a long distance relationship and you're in a new place by yourself, or, you know, you just don't have a partner and it's just just very different. And I was lucky because we could have all these shared experiences and adventures together. So that was, that was good. But yeah, I I felt at home in the Netherlands very quickly and at Astron. I, I got to know a lot of the Institute and everyone was super friendly. So I really liked that. And I appreciated that I got this, very different non-Australian perspective on astronomy on the world it, it really changes the way you think about things so I do I think it's a great I guess benefit of what we get to do as academics is travel the world and get these experiences
0: fantastic talk about stepping out now In the middle of last year, you returned back to Australia to take up the position as Head of ASCAP Science Operations at CSIRO. Can you tell us what this work involves, please, Vanessa?
1: Yeah, so, uh, I mean, I guess that's like kind of the main title. I, I do a lot of different things, so I can cover a little bit of that. As part of that role, so that's obviously working directly with ASCAP, I kind of see my realm the realm I operate in right now as everything from what the science teams want to observe so they have you know the surveys the specifications these is this is the data or the specifications for the data they expect to come out at the other end so I have those as inputs and then obviously we have to schedule them we have to make sure the systems working properly that it's like stable that kind of stuff and then you you observe these science targets and then they get recorded and sent to the ingest cluster which is at the Pawsey supercomputing center so my space where i have to make sure things are going well is pretty much that realm so from specification until ingest and so that's where i spend a lot of my effort which involves working with uh, the engineers on site at the murchison radio observatory that's really great working with people who are based in geraldton which is the closest kind of csiro outpost to MRO, people in Perth, people in Sydney, engineers, software developers, uh, technicians, all kinds of, and scientists, obviously. So yep. all kinds of people. And it's like a really good, I don't know, it's it's nice to be at the centre of all this multidisciplinary work. I, I really enjoy that. And so, yeah, so I I guess as part of my role, not just doing it, but also thinking about, how do we do it now and how do we want to do it in future to make it better, you know, when we transition to full operations. So we also have this project that's been running since I guess about October last year. It's called ASCAP X, which is like ASCAP X standard. I I, I think that's what it stands for, but it's just ASCAP X. And this is not just, you know, it's, it's adding some of the, core functionality or new features that we still need to do the surveys properly, but also increasing the stability, reliability of the system so that we can actually transition effectively into full operations after the current period we're in, which is pilot surveys. So, I'm involved in that. I have this really cool title. I'm the product owner for Earth. (laughs) So, (laughs) it sounds awesome, I think. Um, Earth, it's just, it's a cool title. We also have air and fire the product owner for earth is responsible for representing what we would call the client needs so these are the scientists or the customers scientists uh to the the team that's kind of i would guess the hardware so it's people, hardware and software stuff that's dedicated to operations whereas air is more focused on processing supercomputing like that aspect so so that's my realm and i'm also like developing stuff for that so trying to develop more plotting techniques that help us see the data quality, all kinds of things. Uh, and, and, yeah, and just basically trying to prioritize things so that what we actually develop is of the most use at the most time. So that's, that's really cool and that's been a fun process. Uh, I'm actually, I was in Perth right now. I'm in Perth right now <laughs> to, to get more training on how best to be a product owner uh, so how to actually do this role. This is a new, relatively new, I guess, uh, software development technique or just project management technique known as SAFE, which stands for Scaled Agile Framework. Uh, if someone's interested, they can go Google it. It's, yep. it's an interesting thing, but I am learning a lot uh, as, as part of this process. I also actually work with Compact Array, so the Australia Telescope Compact Array, uh, various things, helping out with uh, operations and support there. My, my core role, I guess, there at the moment is managing duty astronomers who are generally experienced observers from the CSIRO communities, so either staff or students or postdocs who help uh, astronomers actually observe with, with the ATCA which I think actually I think this is worth pointing out that actually in Australia we have quite a unique model. We actually let astronomers, for the, in the case of Cobatrayan Parks, we let them do their own observations, which is not common around the world for these world-class instruments. A lot of the times they've taken a step back and you know separated the astronomers from the telescopes, which is obviously in some ways, okay, maybe it increases efficiency because you have operators who are trained to do it. But I think actually one of the costs of that is that astronomers then start to lose their intuition for how a telescope works. So I think at Australia, we're actually, I guess, very lucky that we still have the chance to work so directly with telescopes. And I wouldn't be in the position I am today if I hadn't had that experience as a student or as a postdoc. So that's something that, yeah, I hope we can continue to support in the future and still give the next generation of astronomers these hands-on experiences with telescopes in a meaningful way that actually contributes to their broader understanding of how radio astronomy works. And anyway, so yeah, so I'm doing ASCAP, I'm doing cobb I'm also still working with the Flash team, so progressing on our pilot survey and the data there. And I actually, a small percentage, still working with Astron, so contributing to, right now, appetite effort to just make sure things go smoothly for their surveys
0: fantastic I hope you get a chance to eat and sleep occasionally (laughs)
1: sometimes (laughs) yeah it's fine
0: (laughs) now I'll probably edit this out um we did a road trip last year and went up to the ATCA and met Jamie Stevens and did a fantastic interview with him what a beautiful facility that is
1: it is, isn't it? It's so great. I think that like, it's a shame that not more people know about it. It's so yeah. so cool and we really should do more to just really promote it uh, in the broader Australian community. Everyone knows parks, everyone knows the dish, but the Comix is a great facility that actually does a lot of very varied science and, yeah, it'd be great to see it known more broadly.
0: It's beautiful. Now, let's get back to this research and the data that's attached to it, all of these new instruments are so powerful, they're generating petabytes of data that scientists simply haven't got the time to even analyse a fraction of it. Have we got enough computing power to even run the AI algorithms required to interrogate that raw data? And are you concerned at all that AI might throw away some raw data that could actually have important data hidden in it. or Look, uh, you might just want to tell us about data visualisation and how VR is impacting on research.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's so much cool stuff that, like, you know, just bringing up data and AI and visualisation, like these are all very cool things that I can get very excited about. Yeah, so I guess one thing is, yes, we are in this realm of generating petabytes of data And as astronomers, we're really, radio astronomers, really pushing the boundary there. We're challenging our supercomputing centers to keep up with us because it's like, well, we need more disk space. Ah, so (laughs) there's a lot of that all the time. It's obviously requiring us to change the way we think about how we even interact with this data because, you know, with the Cornback Trail parks, our normal techniques don't work in the same way we have to we have to really think about it differently so one of the projects that I've been working on as part of ASCAP X is looking at how I mean yes we can go to AI and machine learning but you can only do that effectively if you still kind of understand what's in your data so I've been focusing at the moment on really trying to visualize what we can you know we can't Visualize everything it's too big, but we can find clever techniques of trying to pull out the information we need so visualization is really very important for us still, especially at the stage where we're transitioning because if you suddenly went from humans looking at everything and really understanding all the details to machine learning doing everything and not really knowing what it's doing or how it's going to pull stuff out there's a lot of room for like scariness, <laughs> so uh, I'm trying to help bridge that gap by focusing a lot on visualization of these complex data sets and how we do it effectively. Uh, but there is, there's is so much potential for machine learning and AI you have, I mean, it's like any tool, the same as math, the same as computing, you have to use it effectively and be careful about, you know, using the right tool for the right job. So I think that's something we still have a lot to learn about as a community. And we can really collaborate with the data science industry on this because they've, they're doing this too. And I would really like to see, I guess, more crosstalk between those two. One of the, obviously, then you start to wonder, like you said, about what happens when we start automating everything, not even AI, but just automation. And we start throwing away the discoveries that otherwise we would find because a human was pouring over the data in detail. So that is actually a very challenging question. We call it, serendipitous discoveries and there's a lot of people thinking about this Uh, we actually we have a conference coming up at CSIRO in I guess late June that's being organized by George Hobbs and it's the topic is finding the unknown and what I think is great about that conference is that it's really not just focused on the astronomy aspects of finding the unknown but we really are partnering as much as we can with people who are representing industry or different academic fields do answering the same questions and trying to bring together that group of people. So I'm super excited about that conference. I think it'll be really good. The topic of VR, I mean, like (laughs) I'm in this this phase where pretty much to everything I'm like, but could we use VR? It's not quite at that stage yet, but um, I am like a strong advocate of it, especially with the Oculus Quest. I think that's actually one of the big game changes because suddenly, it's, it's affordable, it's not tied to a super powered PC, it doesn't require things to be set up around the room, you're suddenly looking at a device that is much more usable. And so I think over, I'm hoping over the next few years, we're actually gonna see a really big shift towards virtual reality technologies. And that's gonna have a huge impact on research. For example, we, I sit in a lot of meetings and we're distributed, at least you know a lot of the time across Australia, sometimes around the world, How different will it be when people aren't just on these screens with cameras that zoom in on your face when you're talking like, you know, that's okay, but it's a bit arbitrary if we're actually in the same virtual room and we can interact in a more organic way. Like, I think that would be amazing and would be really great. Um, You know, I could train someone on how to use the telescope even if they're on the other side of the world, and it's 11pm for them, like, I could still show them the same screens and interact with them in a way that actually has impact. So I, yeah, so I don't know, I'm a big advocate of VR. Uh, my partner, Glenn, is also very pro-VR. He, he's actually running uh, a section in this conference, the Finding the Unknown, where we're going to experiment with VR technologies and try to see what potential there is there and assess which things work and which things don't so I'm excited to see that happen.
0: Very exciting times fantastic now let's go back and talk a little bit about your own Milky Way halo research or the um, the sea fog project or perhaps more generally what is your most puzzling challenging your most enjoyable research and what you hope to achieve with the projects that you're currently working on
1: yeah that's a good question i i guess i do try to do a lot of things still so i am still kind of in parallel continuing some of the milky way stuff and some of the flash work um so the milky way research our current phase is we we designed a survey to do with parks that was similar to what jay had done so like this sensitive sightline survey we called it swish which i think is a great acronym that stands for a uh, survey of weak intensity southern h1 or hydrogen yep. and we surveyed like you know we had something like 300 hours pointing at different places in the sky we're still trying to understand the data the calibration of that is a little bit challenging but um but from that data, we'll be able to say more about this iceberg structure and how it matches what we see. Uh, we have some of our sight lines are aligned with targets that a collaborator in the US has pointed out with the Hubble Space Telescope, looking for UV absorption lines. So we'll bring that together. So that's, that's kind of progressing. The SeaFog project, I, I, I mean, acronyms, you must, you must have seen a lot of acronyms in your <laughs> podcast series. SeaFog uh, yeah. is studies with Erosita, and flash so the and is capitalized that's the only thing i'm upset about uh, of obscured galaxies so seafog is a collaboration that we have between ascap the flash team and the erosita uh, german team who are based in um in well, near munich yep and we in in GAR... oh it was like German words. I always want to say Garching. There's actually Garching in that region. Ah, so anyway, it's in Garching okay. Yeah, it's <laughs> subtle. But anyway, so they're based there and we are working with them. So they have the ERZA telescope. It's a it's an X-ray telescope that launched in about July last year after a lot of years of preparation. And it's now up in the sky doing a sky survey of X-rays. It's going to be the the best all-sky survey we have in X-ray wavelengths since pretty much the 90s. So I'm really excited about that. And we're going to try and combine that data with what we gain from flash, which is going to be looking for this gas all over the radio sky, and combine the two to really understand how, you know, when we see dense gas near black holes, we sometimes also see x-ray absorption. So we see like the evidence from the x-rays of dense gas, but x-rays actually doesn't just trace neutral gas, it traces ionized and molecular. So putting those two together and understanding how they relate to each other is really exciting. And for the first time, we'll be able to do it for the whole sky. So that's cool. And that, you know, that will progress over the next few years. Uh, One of the most, I guess, interesting or challenging uh, projects I have right now which I had a summer student, Emily, work on over the summer, which was actually great. Like, it was so nice having a summer student, and Emily was the best. Like, it was really good having her on the project. Uh, We, as part of some of the work we had done for Flash, understanding how, you know, the structure of radio galaxies, we found this interesting cluster of radio sources that we're not really sure how they relate to each other. So she works over the summer on you know, looking at the multi-wavelength properties of that, trying to figure out what's going on, doing some statistics, you know, is it chance alignment? Is it actually related? Is it all merging together? And from all of that, we we have some really exciting things to follow up on. Uh, we want to try and get better optical data to just really understand that region in more detail. So it's hard because like, I feel like the more data we get for that object, the more questions we have, <laughs> but yeah, it's really fun. And um, yeah, it was really good having a student, you know, like working on that project and asking questions and seeing things in a different light. You know, I've been looking at this thing for a few years. So with people around me, but you bring someone else in who's new to it and they just have different perspectives.
0: So I I think that was really great too. That's beautiful. Now, speaking of fun, you have a rich history of finding fun in everything you do. Tell us about Zootopia, please.
1: <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I think you like if you're not having fun, you're probably doing it wrong. So yes, <laughs> having fun is a good thing. Um. Right. Yeah. So Zootopia was an interesting uh, case. I I saw the movies. This is a Disney movie, and I think it's actually like one of the best Disney movies probably of the last decade. So if someone listening hasn't seen it, go see it. It's very good. I enjoyed it so much that I was like, uh, I had looked. So Disney did this promotion where to, I don't know, I guess what were they, social media influencers, journalists and stuff, or bloggers, they sent out these little licenses, like, so driver's licenses, as if you were, you know, in the Zootopia world, they sent them out to people, I thought this was, like, so cool, and I wanted one, but obviously, uh, I couldn't get one, because this was, like, done before the movie came out, and obviously not available, so I was, like, okay, well, if I can't get one, I'll make my own, so I designed my own, and I was, like, very proud of it, (laughs) and then, I kind of published it online and I was like, you know, if there's other people out there who want one, let me know. I can do it. Like I tweeted this or something. Maybe I put it on Facebook. I forget exactly. And so, yeah. So then at first, you know, there were a few taker ups. It was like maybe 20. And at this point I was doing it in Keynote, like a PowerPoint template. You just change text and I was like, okay, this is all takes about five minutes per license. And then I had a Google form which was accepting the request and it went overnight from like 20 to 200. And I was like, Oh my gosh, like 20 is fine, but 200 times five minutes, that's like way too many minutes. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I was like, Oh God. So I closed the Google form and just like reassessed everything and actually used Python skills to automate that entire process. So from the Google form output, to generating a license with the text and then sending it either via email or Twitter like I used Python to just do all of that yep. and from there it just went kind of crazy you know there were suddenly loads of people it went it appeared on like Russian Facebook and people signed up to date there's been something like over 5,000 licenses yep. um, so yeah it was just a really interesting experience I've never like you know been part of I guess, online communities so much. But I did get to know the Zootopia community a bit. And um, I also got to know uh, a couple of the directors of, of the movie via Twitter interactions. So that was pretty cool. Uh, yeah, it was just a really fun experience. And I think it was like a nice case where I could apply skills that I developed in science for something extremely different and have a nice outcome from it. So, yeah, I think I use it sometimes in talks uh, to students, for example, where it's like, You sometimes go into a school and you're a scientist or an astronomer and they're like, they think you're just going to tell them if you do science, you're just going to grow up and be an astronomer. But there's so many reasons why having these science skills, programming skills has the capacity to change the world around us. So having that science training is actually great no matter what industry you go into
0: right, and that contact with the general public as well. Well, let's talk a little about outreach. You've just done a TEDx talk in Sydney. I believe it was all about curiosity. How was that for you? And what other outreach activities are you involved in? And why is it important to us as we see technologies um, redefining the role of science in society?
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Like I think, um, yeah, our society has changed a lot. So I did, I did this TEDx talk. So this was part of TEDx Bly Street. um, And yeah, it was really, it was great. There was such an amazing group of people doing it. I got to, you know, I got to meet the other TEDx speakers. My topic was, yeah, it was curiosity. So it was kind of, you know, I was, I'm an astronomer, astrophysicist. So I talked a little bit about what that means, but also about how science is relevant and also, really important and then these scientific ways of thinking of being curious on one hand but evidence-driven on the other so you make your decisions you make your draw your conclusions on the basis of the evidence to answer a question I think these two aspects are super important for our society so that's what I was trying to get across with the talk I, I to be honest it's a little bit of a blur um, <laughs> I haven't I haven't seen the replay yet so hopefully it came across okay but um, yeah, I think the TEDx experience was interesting. I've I've done a lot of talking to media or outreach and things like that and talks, obviously, as part of astronomy. But this was a very different thing. It was, you know, I had 8 to 10 minutes. That was the time slot that we were told. Yep. You have a very short amount of time to try and get across something that's a complex message, uh, hopefully an important message. And you have to do it in this, like, dramatic way right you have to sound I don't know <laughs> fancy or dramatic you know it, it very much it's different to a normal conversation like the one we're having where we, you know it's it's very rehearsed and every word matters and how you say things matters and so for me that was challenging because I pretty much failed drama at high school like I was <laughs> terrible at it <laughs> so so this was like you know I, I had to do rehearsals for this you know you're actually standing up pretending the room is full of people and you're like There's no one here, so that that, it was a great experience. I enjoyed it a lot, and I learned a lot from it. But I definitely wouldn't sign up to do that as like my full-time job. That it was it was hard. It's different. Um, So yeah. So I think it's in terms of outreach in general. I try to do as much as I can. You know, just talking to people. I I've realized over time we talk about in science. You know, we want to reach out to people, encourage people into STEM careers. And that's obviously something we're doing, investing a lot of effort in. But there's also this notion of generally increasing the scientific literacy of society and of the world. And I think that's actually one of the most important things that we can spend some efforts on in outreach. That's what I try to do as much as I can, because there's this I guess, notion people sometimes have, they're like, oh, you know, science is so hard. It's so distant. And as long as people think that, if they think that science is something that scientists do and it's not relevant to them, then they're not going to vote for science. They're not going to think scientifically or realize that science is important so much to our everyday lives. So what I try, you know, what I really want to do in terms of our age is reach out to everyone, not just the people who already support science or, you know, go to every cool science thing they can, but the people who really just don't think science is for them because it is. And so that's, I hope somewhere where we can make a big impact over the coming years is just, you know, Imagine an Australia where everyone's like, yeah, science is awesome. It's the best thing ever. Like that would be the, the dream, right? <laughs> if everyone really appreciated that. So yeah, I, I don't know. I'm always on the lookout for more things we can do. I think like what you're doing as part of your podcast is great. There's everything helps, you know, the more we have the science message out there, the more people have the chance to realize why it's so relevant, the better. Um, one of the things I do Sammy regularly, I guess, is I talk to uh, Richard Glover on ABC Drive. And that's been a really great experience because they have this this session called Self-Improvement Wednesday. And basically you have something like a 10-minute slot to talk to Richard about something that is self-improving. So something where people will learn something interesting. And I think what I enjoy most about that is I have some flexibility in picking a topic that I think is important and also possibly interesting to people and then going with that. So, you know, often when we talk to the media, it's about a topic that is, I don't know, important right now. So, like a lunar eclipse coming up or some big discovery, like gravitational waves, you know, it's very topic focused, whereas this is more flexible. I, I can just think, Oh, Hey, it would be really cool if more people knew about, Ruby Payne Scott. Let's talk about Ruby Payne Scott. So yeah, so I think that's what I really enjoy about that particular aspect of outreach is having some, I guess, influence in what we talk about is, is really good. But yeah, the main thing I think outreach, what I hope, at least with the things I do, is to really convey this message that we're kind of all in this together. There's a lot of global situations where we really are in this together. And I've benefited so much from this scientific. Thinking scientific approach to life and science is for everyone, and that's what I hope to get across.
0: <laughs> yeah, fantastic. We're big fans of citizen science, but that's another topic again. So, thanks for yep. Is there anything else that we should watch out for in the near future? What are you keeping your eye on?
1: <laughs> well, obviously, ASCAP. Cap looks like, are you working today, as Cap? Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think uh, in terms of Uh, at least the things we've discussed I think over the next six months to a year we'll start to see some of the pilot survey results from ASCAP coming out so that'll be pretty exciting and it's really the first case where all the different survey teams that want to do science with ASCAP have this subset of data where they can do really cool things so the stuff we've heard so far is that it's just the data is great and there's lots of cool things coming out so I think that'll be great the Square Kilometre Array, which I'm sure you've covered in other podcasts, that uh, should begin construction, I guess, over the next couple years, year or so. So that project will really start to ramp up and be very significant over the next decade as you know, antennas start to get out on the ground and build and commission. So, and CSIRO is a big part of that. So I think we'll see a shift in in CSIRO's focus as that begins to happen. Uh, And obviously, you know, continuing to make sure that ASCAP is running smoothly and transitioning to full operations properly. So, uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of cool stuff that's going to come out of radio astronomy in the next year and especially coming years. So people should keep an eye out for that.
0: It certainly is a golden age for radio astronomy. All thank you so much, Dr. Vanessa Moss. On behalf of our listeners, it's been really fabulous speaking with you and a special highlight for me because I've been looking forward to speaking with you since episode one back in 2016. Uh, You're very generous with your time. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so
1: much for having me on. I'm glad that I could be part of this and we could have this conversation. It's been a lot of fun. So thanks for having me.
0: Thanks, Vanessa. Farewell for now.
1: Yep. See ya. Talk to you later. (laughs)
0: So we'll see you in a month's time when we release our next fabulous episode which features the return of Dr Ian Astroblog Musgrave and our special guest this time is Professor Melanie Johnston Hollett, who's the Director of the Murchison Widefield Array and Research Professor based in Western Australia. And don't forget to get the latest space news from Rami Mandal on his fabulous SpaceAustralia.com website. And another great Astro podcast to catch is The Scientists with Dr. Ancalis Sanchez Lopez and PhD candidate Kirsten Banks. We'll be back in a month in mid April. Till then, take care, look after yourself and your loved ones. Radio yeah. Way. Yeah.